Take your copy of God's Word with me this morning. I trust you have it with you. Open it to again to Acts uh, chapter 17, where we left off uh, last week. This week we continue with Paul and Silas and Timothy on their second, uh, or Paul's second anyway, missionary journey uh, through uh, Asia and Macedonia. We saw them last week in Philippi. This week they'll travel from Philippi about 100 miles or so, continuing west to Thessalonica, which at the time was the second largest city in all of Rome, major city in Rome, some 200,000 or so people that lived there in Thessalonica. You can read Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica uh, toward the back of your Bibles in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to see his uh, conversation, his encouragement to the church there. And then from Thessalonica, they'll, or in Thessalonica, they'll preach a message that will get them into uh, no little bit of hot water as they declare a gospel that, that is revolutionary, that, that in the minds of some turns the world upside down. And from Thessalonica, they'll have to go on uh, about 50 to 70 miles or so west further to a small city of Berea where they will again preach the gospel as they have been doing time and again. Now, this gospel that they preach, that Paul and Silas and now Timothy as part of this missionary team preach, the same gospel message that they've been preaching, that Jesus is Lord, is revolutionary. It is revolutionary in its ability to dramatically overturn worldviews. But depending upon an individual's perspective about the world or perspective on the world, the gospel will either have the effect of turning your world upside down or, quite rather, turning it right side up. And so we see here in Acts chapter 17, as Paul and Silas and Timothy go to Thessalonica and to Berea, we see the world turned right side up. As we look at this gospel again that has the power to to change, to transform uh, not only our worldview but also our lives, uh, my hope for us this morning is that we we, we would be reminded once again that the simple gospel message is intelligible, that it is clear, it is logical, it is biblical, and it does set right our worldview. It does uh, set in the right context how we see the world around us. Likewise, as a result of having seen or looked at God's Word this morning in Acts chapter 17, I would hope that we would submit our crooked worldviews to the correction of the all-sufficient gospel that we need, that what we need, is, uh, that what we need most excuse me, is Jesus, the only Savior for our sin, from our sin. I ask you to join me here now in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, and would you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word? The historian Luke, and now missionary partner with Paul, continues uh, this way. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, when they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason, as a, a bond from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. God, this is your word. It is for us. It is about you. It is from you. And it points us to Jesus the King, who is better than anything this world has to offer or to afford. So, God, make much of yourself today through your word. Make much of Christ today in our hearts through your word. We pray, we, your willing, listening servants, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Here we see, yet again, we, as, as we have week after week after week through the course of Acts, Paul and, and uh, other believers taking this gospel message that Jesus is king all over the known world. This is a compelling gospel that they preach, and they preach it in a compelling way. This is the first thing that we see in our text today, that this revolutionary gospel comes through, is communicated by compelling gospel preaching. This we see in chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, and also in verses 10 through 12. Paul is a compelling gospel preacher. We know that by the effects that his preaching has. People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul is a compelling gospel preacher for at least two reasons. First of all, he is patient in his preaching. He exercises patience in preaching. Look at verse 2 with me again, would you? You see there in verse 2 that Paul does what he always does in going to the synagogue of the Jews to share with them the good news of Jesus from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament, pointing to them, demonstrating to them that Jesus is this Christ. He is the Messiah that God promised. But look again and see that he did so not just once, but on three consecutive Sabbaths. Now, Luke doesn't say so to us today, but it is probably fair to assume that Paul and Silas did not confine their gospel preaching only to the synagogues on those Sabbath days, but probably were preaching the gospel message throughout the week as well. So for at least three full weeks, they diligently worked to share the gospel with the Thessalonians. These three weeks are hardly the longest amount of time that Paul will spend in any one place preaching the gospel, teaching about Jesus. In fact, he will spend upwards of 18 months in a city called Corinth and and even three years in another city called Ephesus. A compelling gospel preaching, a compelling gospel witness is patient gospel preaching. A compelling gospel witness is a patient gospel witness. It takes into account the hardness of sinners' hearts that can only be overcome by the constant chipping away by the influence of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the Word of God. Dear Christian, compelling gospel preaching, a compelling gospel witness in your life will endure in love with the lost, with those that don't know Jesus. And it does not quit when sharing becomes difficult or reception of the gospel comes slowly. Paul, Silas, Timothy are compelling gospel preachers because they have patience, exercise patience in their preaching, but also because they exercise clarity in communication. 
Paul and Silas not only practice this patience in their gospel sharing, but they work to be clear about the message that they are preaching. Look again at verses 2 through 4 in your Bible. Take a pencil or a pen if you're not afraid to write in your Bible, and you shouldn't be. Underline or circle the words that we find there in order in verses 2 through 4. You see there that Paul reasoned with them. He was explaining, circle that word explaining from the Scriptures. He was proving, underline proving. He persuaded the people there that Jesus was the Christ. All of these words describe the painstaking work of being very, very clear about the gospel that we preach, about the gospel that Paul preached. And not only knowing the gospel clearly, but also practicing to communicate it with clarity in a way that friends, neighbors, co-workers, people on the street can understand. Not only were Paul and Silas clear with the words that they used in sharing the gospel, but they were also clear to show that this was not a new gospel, that this was not a new thing that God was doing, neither was it something that God was doing unexpectedly. We find in verse 2, we read there that Paul reasoned with those who were in the synagogue in Thessalonica. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament that they had available to them, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying that the Christ, that the Messiah, was Jesus of Nazareth. Paul and Silas used the very word of God that the Jews already had in their Hebrew Bibles in the Old Testament to prove from passages like Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53 and so many other places that we've already seen in the course of Acts that God's Messiah, His chosen Savior, would not just be a political powerhouse as the Jews had hoped. He would not just be one who would restore Israel to geopolitical significance in the world, but that He would have to die for the sins of the people and be raised again. This isn't a new picture of the Messiah that Paul and Silas teach and preach and do so clearly, but an old, faithful, biblically true picture of this Messiah that God has always given to his people. Jesus may not have been the Christ that the Jews expected, but he most certainly is the Christ. He is the Messiah that the Old Testament proclaims. Knowing that compelling gospel preaching happens with patience, that it happens, that it takes place in the context of clarity of communication. Church, Christian, you who are a follower of Jesus and who are compelled by Christ, commissioned by Christ to share, to preach, to declare the same gospel, you strive to be a compelling gospel conversationalist. Strive to be a compelling gospel conversationalist. How do you do that? The same way Paul and Silas and others did. You be patient with those who are hearing the gospel clearly for the first time. Wait with them. Suffer long with them as they come to grips with the reality that Jesus is the only answer to their sin. Love them for a long time. Wait with them. Pray for them. Pray with them. For weeks, months, years, if necessary, be patient with those who are hearing the gospel for the first time. And dear friends, work hard to speak about Jesus in clear, everyday language. Work hard not to use Christianese in your description of the gospel, in your telling of the gospel. Now, we who have been in church a long time, we know words like justification and propitiation and atonement. We understand those things. And some of you are still scratching your heads about propitiation. That's okay. But we, use, we often use these big $20 theological words when we're sharing the gospel with people who have never cracked a Bible in their lives. How can we expect them to understand these specialized terms if we cannot explain them clearly to them? In a post-churched culture like the one we live in, and we do live in a post-churched culture, 
right? The church has moved through uh, America. The gospel has moved through America. And now people themselves are actively moving away from the gospel. They are leaving churches. We are in a post-church era. Gospel presentations in this era that simply say something as, as, as pithy as give your life to Jesus and things will get better simply will not do. It's not a full gospel and it's not a true gospel. In order for us to have a compelling, convincing gospel witness, we must first know clearly and love dearly the gospel of Jesus. We must know the contours of the Bible story and God's wondrous works of redemption. You've got to know this book, Christian, to be a compelling gospel witness. To know the gospel clearly, you've got to know how God works his plan of redemption from Genesis through Revelation. You've got to know it. You've got to know it clearly for yourself. You've got to be able to preach it to yourself in the mirror in the morning. And if you can't understand the gospel that you preach, brothers and sisters, the the guy on the bus next to you isn't going to be able to understand the gospel that you preach. We must be able, friends, we must be able with love and grace to point out the hard truth that apart from Christ, there is no hope in this life or the next for those without Jesus. We've got to be brave enough to speak that hard truth to people in grace and in love. And in the same breath, we must be ready to say that just because someone gives their life to Christ, that does not mean that he will make everything better in this life. We saw just a few weeks ago, Paul himself, after being stoned nearly to death, returning to the cities that, that previously had opposed him and even tried to stone him, saying that through much suffering we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Just because you give your life to Jesus does not mean your world will get easier tomorrow. The gospel message, friends, is the greatest message that we have. But it is not an easy message to hear, and it is not an easy message to respond to. It requires repentance from sin. It requires total submission of all of one's life to Jesus. It is not easy, but it is ever so good. And it is the best news that we have. Knowing that we have such good news then, friends, let us press one another on into an ever fuller and an ever clearer understanding of this gospel. And let us press one another on, encourage one another to greater patience and greater love with those that God is leading us to share this compelling gospel message with. Now, I want to help you in this. I want to help you to understand the gospel more clearly. I want to help you to understand it more fully. I want to help you to be and to have a compelling gospel witness with patience, with love, and with clarity with those that you are sharing the gospel with. And I can't do all that this morning or any one morning from the pulpit, so I'm going to give you a book. Okay? As you leave today, you will see there's a table right by the front doors with uh, stacks of a little black book called What is the Gospel? Now, you may think that that is a relatively uh, elementary sort of book to read, but I promise you it will help you in your gospel preaching. It will help you in your understanding of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. It will help you in your understanding the, the, the contours of God's redemptive plan through all of Scripture. I want every family in our church to have one of these books, and so they are there on a table for you to take one per family as you leave today. That, that is my, that is the church's gift to you, okay? We are equipping you for ministry. And part of that is in giving good books that can bear more information to you than I can in 30 or 40 or 50 minutes, okay? So I want to help you to do this. And so you have those books and you take one home today. This compelling gospel message that Paul and Silas teach with patience, with clarity, bears with it an unsettling gospel truth, an unsettling gospel truth. 
As Paul, Silas, and Timothy continue their preaching in Thessalonica, their gospel begins to unsettle some of the ruling and influential Jews there in that city. Now to shut them up, to stop their preaching, these Jews go to the marketplace and they find the local troublemakers, these Gentile thug types who just kind of hang out in the shadows, plotting and scheming uh, about what sort of trouble to start that day. And these Jews go to these rabble-rousers and they stir them up into a frenzy in order to get them to claim falsely that Paul and Silas, these, uh, that, that Paul and Silas, these, these Jews, uh, uh, excuse me, that Paul and Silas are, are uh, causing riots in the city. Now, this group, this mob gets together and they go to try to find Paul and Silas. They go to the house of Jason where Paul and Silas were staying. And they're not being able to find Paul and Silas because word had probably gotten out and the two had probably taken up hiding somewhere. These Jews and the mob with them instead bring out Paul's host. They bring Jason and some of the brothers, some of the believers that met in his house. They bring those guys out and put them in front of the leaders of the city as sort of proxies for Paul and Silas. These Jews and the mob that is there with them ultimately level, of char- level a charge of sedition against these missionaries. They say they, they are speaking treasonously about the empire. They say that Paul and the others are preaching a message that seeks to undermine the authority of Caesar and the peace of Rome by saying that there's another king who's greater than Caesar and that his name is Jesus. This is the unsettling gospel truth. This is it, that Jesus is king. This is the truth that turns people's worlds either upside down or right side up, that Jesus is king. This is the hard truth of the gospel, that Jesus is king. Now, for the Christian steeped in Bible and and study of the gospel, this does not necessarily on its face seem so disturbing. We've already heard amens. Yes, Jesus is king this morning. That doesn't bother us so much. Surely we know as believers, those who have have spent time in God's word, we know that Matthew, the gospel writer in his gospel, is clear to show us that Jesus is a descendant of David and an heir to the throne of Israel. We know that Matthew knows that Jesus is king, but more still, we know that as John says in his gospel, Jesus is is the very incarnate word of God, one with God the Father, who himself made all things, that all the things that we see and that we know. Friends, Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the cosmos, and he is ruling and reigning even today. We know that. But in a culture like Rome, where the emperor was worshipped as a god, to say that there was another king, another lord, other than Caesar, was to quite literally overturn the entire conception of ultimate authority in Rome. To those who were devoted to the emperor cult in Rome, the claim that Jesus was king was a claim that turned the world on its head. And that's exactly what the missionaries are accused of, isn't it? Their accusers say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Now, while the claim of the accusers is that the gospel of Jesus seeks to undo the Roman government, the actions of Christians in the empire themselves actually has demonstrated quite the opposite. It's not the Christians who start a riot in Thessalonica, but their opponents. Christians say, yes, Jesus is king, but we also see them peacefully following the laws of the land and submitting to the law of the land insofar as they can still faithfully worship Jesus. Christians were not stealing. Christians were not engaging in prostitution or murdering other people in the streets. But in fact, they're doing all of the opposite during this time. 
They're caring generously for those who are in need. They're practicing chastity and monogamy. They're protecting the vulnerable, not not in spite of the fact that Jesus is king, but because Jesus is king. The unsettling gospel truth that Jesus is king does have the effect of turning the world upside down. But only for those who in their sin see this broken and hurting world is already right side up. It is disorienting to the Roman worldview to say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. It is upsetting to an idolatrous people who are content in their worship of empty idols to say that their gods are dead and Christ is risen and living and ruling and reigning. It is disturbing to those who wanted a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans and return Israel to geopolitical prominence to hear that the Messiah has a better plan of overthrowing not just Roman rule but sin and death by his own substitutionary death in the place of sinners. That claim is upsetting to people. But for those who have lived by a Roman or otherwise secular worldview and been disappointed by it, been disillusioned by it, been broken by it, the gospel is not disorienting, but orienting. For, those who, for, for the one who has tried all that he can in his own power to have peace with God, but, but has never found it, the promise of the gospel turns his world right side up. For the woman who has longed for meaning and validation and significance in in romantic relationships and only ever been abused by men, hurt by men, used by men, the promise of the gospel of a God who loves unconditionally and fulfills perfectly turns her world right side up. To the young wealthy man who has everything that this world can afford and all the status that goes with his name brand junk and he still feels empty and cold and dead inside. The truth that the son of God who had a right to everything set aside all of his rights became poor and gave his life away for sinners like that wealthy young man so that he could know real life, true life, abundant life. That truth turns his world right side up. For the 21st century American, I'm going to preach to us for a minute. For the 21st century American who believes that life is best when you have a college degree, a spouse of your choosing, as many kids as you plan to have or don't plan to have, a home that you own, a career that pays six figures and a comfortable retirement, the gospel, uh, the message of the gospel that Jesus is king and your dreams are not is upsetting. For the one who thinks they're Political leanings and social and economic convictions have answers to all the ills of society. The truth that what we need more than Republicans or Democrats to lead us is a God who can rescue us from our sin. That truth is disturbing. For the self-described so-called Christian who sees their church or even Jesus himself as a helpful accessory to ease the pain of life, The message that Jesus Christ is king, that he demands more of you than three hours on a Sunday morning, that he wants every millisecond of your existence and every thought of your mind and every affection of your heart. The truth that Jesus will either rule over all of you or none of you is a gospel that discombobulates in our day and age. And I might dare say, even in our church today, it is a message that turns worlds upside down. But listen, brothers and sisters, my dear friends, for those who have tried all that the world has to offer, for those for whom the American dream has become a nightmare for the politically disenfranchised and forgotten and for the self-described Christian who has been disillusioned with the bobblehead version of a best buddy Jesus that so many are content with the unsettling truth of the gospel that Jesus is king turns the world right side up turns it right side up Christian this morning remind yourself that it is good to be upset by the gospel 
it is good to be bothered by the gospel. And when you are, allow the gospel to set your world right side up again. Beloved, the fact that the gospel has the power to turn not only our worldviews, but our very lives right side up is the reason that we work so hard to drive the gospel message into your hearts and minds each week in this room. Church of Jesus Christ, you do not need me to teach you how to raise your children. You don't need me to teach you how to invest your income. You don't need me to teach you how to choose a a college major or to plan your next vacation. You may from time to time think that I should do that, but I am here reminding you today that there is no greater truth from Scripture to know and by which to govern your life than the unsettling truth that Jesus is King. And in a day and a time where so many are content to have a dashboard-mounted hula-dancing Christ to make wishes to, I want to weekly introduce you to the Lion of Judah, to the Lord of all lords, to the snake-crushing, sin-beating, death-defying, resurrected, and reigning Jesus. I want to point you to him. I intend, listen, I intend to preach the gospel that upsets our sinful inclinations because our sinful inclinations, friends, need upsetting. We need King Jesus moment by moment to set our hearts and our world right side up. Paul and Silas preach a compelling gospel message with patience, with clarity everywhere they go. The same gospel that has this unsettling gospel truth that Jesus is king, Caesar is not. That Jesus is king and John is not. That Jesus is king and Diane is not. That Jesus is king king, and Stephen is not. And in so preaching that revolutionary truth, we find, yet again, in Acts, competing gospel responses. Competing gospel responses. Now, this reality is nothing new to us in the course of Acts, is it? We, we've seen this time and again. All through the short history of the apostles, we see opposing reactions to the gospel. And, and, and this truth is, is before us yet again. On the one hand, some respond to the gospel in Thessalonica with rejection and slander. The Jews of Thessalonica, out of their jealousy for the growing group of Christians in their city, not only reject the gospel truth that Jesus is king, but but they slander the very gospel itself along with its messengers. They call them uh, uh, traitors. They call them them, them those who are acting seditiously. So fiercely do they reject the gospel message itself that they travel even even from Thessalonica, 50, 70 miles west, to Berea to speak ill of the missionaries and of King Jesus, to shut down the gospel yet again. They reject the gospel. They slander the gospel and its missionaries. Some do. But on the other hand, we also see the the opposite response to the gospel, not of rejection and slander, but of reception and submission. In Thessalonica, there in verse 4, we see that some of the Jews and and a good number of God-fearing Greeks and influential women in the city, as Luke tells us, come to faith in Jesus. And being persuaded by Paul's patient, clear, compelling proclamation that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Savior from God himself, they receive this good news. They believe this good news and they submit their lives to King Jesus. And then in Berea, a much smaller, far less influential place than the likes of Thessalonica, those Jews who heard Paul, Luke says in verse 11, received this word with all eagerness. They were excited about this news. Have you ever been eager for good news? Have you ever had a test result pending from the doctor? 
and you're, you're eager for good news. Imagine that, but, but with all of the hope and expectation that comes along with knowing that God's promised Savior has actually come. This is the eagerness with which the Bereans receive the message, and they immediately take up their copies of the Scriptures of the Old Testament that they had to make sure that the good news that they were hearing was, in fact, God's news. Such good news could not be taken just at the word of Paul only but must have its goodness and its truth proven by the word of God himself. These Bereans are more noble uh, than those who are in Thessalonica because they are more devoted. They are, are, are more submitted to the word of God. And it was. This good news that Paul preached was God's news. So then, beloved church, see the joy of being like our brothers and our sisters from ancient Berea. See and know that the Jesus that we preach each week is the one who is promised by the prophets of the Old Testament, who's promised by Moses, promised in the Psalms. Read and know, brothers and sisters. Read and know and love your scriptures, not out of sentimentality, not just for tradition's sake, but for the realization that this is God's word to you about himself. That the Bible is God's promise of his, uh, of his salvation for your sin. That this holy book, these six, this small library of 66 books inspired by God is both from God and ultimately about Him. That it has in it all that is necessary for knowing Him, for loving Him, for living in, in the peace of the salvation that He gives you from your sins. Friends, know the joy of the Bereans by knowing your scriptures. Examine your scriptures, not out of not out of indifferent obligation, not just to check a box during the week that you did it, but examine your scriptures. Go to them regularly. Understand them out of the joy of knowing that God has spoken to you through them. Read your Bible and meditate on its words, not because they tell you how to live, but because they tell you how to know Jesus, whom your Bible proclaims, how to know Jesus, who himself is life. Dear friends, Hearing this compelling gospel message that has an unsettling truth that Jesus is king and seeing how it is received and or rejected every place that it goes, I urge you today to, to apply the truths that we see, these patterns that we see in the course of Acts to your own life this way by responding to the gospel of Jesus today and respond to it every day with reception and submission to King Jesus. Don't fall into the trap of, of rejecting and slandering the gospel don't, re- don't, don't resist the work of the gospel in your life, but receive it. Receive it and submit to Jesus who is king. Listen, you don't have to be a non-Christian to receive and submit to Jesus as Lord. Though if you aren't a Christian yet and you're here today, you should. You should. Know life in Christ today. Know the forgiveness of sins that comes in giving your life to Jesus as king today. Trust Jesus today if you have not yet. But brothers and sisters, you who are Christians, you who have submitted to Jesus as king, remember this, that Jesus is king every day. Not just on the day of your salvation, but every day. And when the king is present, the knees of his subjects bend and their heads lower. By this definition, knowing that subjects of the king bend their knee, they submit their will to the king. By this definition of a citizen of God's kingdom, can you rightly call yourself a Christian? Is the knee of your heart bent to Christ the King? Is the will of your mind bowed before Him and whatever instruction He will give to you? 
Friends, if your version of the risen Lord Jesus today looks more like a lucky totem or a rabbit's foot that you squeeze for comfort in hard situations, I would ask of you today to let go of these silly, empty, idolatrous versions of a buddy Jesus who cannot save you. The dashboard version of Jesus of Nazareth who bobbles every time you hit a speed bump can't do nothing about the bumps of sin in your life. He can't do anything to rescue you from the pothole of death and destruction that sin has waiting for you. Get rid of that garbage trash version of Jesus that is not true. And take up, take up, not an empty totem picture of Jesus, but the true picture of Jesus who is ruling and reigning, who has crushed the serpent's head, who has risen from the dead, who gave his life that you might be forgiven. Receive that Jesus as king. Brothers and sisters, that Jesus won't fit on a dashboard. And if you try it, he's going to blow your car up. Let go of that empty, idolatrous, buddy Jesus who cannot save you. And instead, dear friends, run headlong to the Jesus of Scripture who has every right to demand everything from you because out of his love for you, he gave everything he had to save you. Dear friends, King Jesus, the one that we, the one that we see in the pages of Scripture is, is the only one who has the ability to set the world right side up. He's the only one that has the ability to set things straight. And when you know him, when you know him, you know that having him is better than having all the comforts of this world. Christian, I'm talking to you today. Receive Jesus as king. Receive him as king. Submit to him as king. Bend the the hardness of your heart. Bend the will of your mind to him as king. Christian, turn, bow your life in submission to the only glorious, only loving, only ruling and reigning king who has the, the power and even the audacity, I would dare say, to turn your world, not upside down, but dear friends, right side up. Brothers and sisters of First West, I don't know if you recognize or not, but one year ago tomorrow... You brought me to this pulpit to preach to you in view of a call to be your senior pastor. One year ago, we opened together 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul reminded the Corinthian church of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he delivered to them of first importance. I stood before you one year ago, and upon the foundation of God's word, I said to you that I would preach this gospel every week as long as I would be your pastor. I said then that I would preach the news that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has died for your sins and risen from the dead, so that if you only repent in him and trust your life to him as Lord, that you might be saved. I said I would preach the gospel until you were sick of hearing the gospel, and then when you were sick of hearing the gospel, I was going to preach it some more. The reason, listen, the reason I'm so committed, even now, a year later, to this message is not because I have nothing else that I could preach. I preach the gospel to you not because I don't have anything else to preach, but because there is no better message to preach. And one year ago, you voted as a church to call me as your senior pastor, and I am grateful to God for this privilege. And the last year, I have endeavored to love you. Sometimes I've done well, not always. I've endeavored to pray for us, and I've endeavored to lead us to pray together as a church. I have intended to equip us all for the work of ministry that God has called each of us to in Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, dear friends, I've begun in the past year to make good on my promise to preach this gospel. 
Now, you may think that because I don't preach a series about how to handle your finances or rearing your children or about all the ills of a society that does not recognize the authority of God, well, you, you may think that because I don't do that, that I'm not preaching well. But my answer to, to that assertion today is, that the, is the same declaration that, that Scripture makes to us today, that Jesus is better. Do you believe that, church? Does your heart believe that Jesus is better? That hearing the gospel week after week after week after week is better than messages about handling your finances. That hearing that Jesus is king is better than sermons about raising your children. That hearing that Jesus is ruling and reigning over your sin, who's given you freedom and salvation from death and separation to God, that hearing that message week after week is better than, than, than a series on, on how to, to handle a, a society gone sideways. This is true, friends, that Jesus is king. He has saved us by his blood. And his call on our lives is to declare this news, that he is king to all people of all nations, to make disciples, that is to to make kingdom citizens who love this king, who is far, uh, to, to, to love this king. And to submit to the, the mission that he has given to us, a far better mission than, than any that we in our own wisdom can concoct. These things are true, friends. Jesus is better. We're going to sing in a moment a song of, of response today. The title of the song is Jesus is Better. And in the lyrics you'll read, in all our sorrows, Jesus is better, church. In all our victories, Jesus is better. More than any comfort, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. In living or dying, friends, Jesus is better. More than family or friends, Jesus is better. More than a spouse, Jesus is better. More than the joy of having children, Jesus is better. More than our income, Jesus is better. More, far more than our safety, Jesus is better. More than clothes on our backs, Jesus is better. More than food in our stomachs, Jesus is better. Than any plan that we have for our lives, church, Jesus is better. Than any church building or padded sanctuary seat, somebody say amen, Jesus is better. Now, y'all help me preach. More than any teacher or preacher, no matter how beautifully bald and bearded or hair suit and handsome he may be, friends, what? More than any sermon? More than any ancient hymn or brand new song of praise? More than our preferences? than all our pride. More than any church program, technology, address, plot of land, or congregation size. Upside down and right side up. Whether anyone else says it with me. And if my world should end tomorrow, church, alone, naked, and dying, I still will say, Jesus is better. So if I preach here for 30 more years or you fire me tomorrow, I have no better message to preach. No better message to preach. And we have no greater theme to sing than Jesus is better.